So hear now the reading of God's holy word from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you would care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So far the reading of God's word may add his blessing to it as we consider it and meditate on it this morning. Well, this psalm begins and ends with the same refrain, if you notice there, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It is a psalm, therefore, that it was written to exalt the magnificent power of God in creation and to praise the Lord for the surprising hierarchy that he has set up in the created order. And by that I refer to the surprising claim that we find in the middle of the psalm that this creator God made and destined lowly mankind for the highest place of honor and dominion over all of God's manifold works. It's, it's surprising, it's astonishing. As King David ponders these cosmic wonders, he radiates with joyful praise for God, which is bookend by the first and the last verse of this psalm. And all that said, this kind of joyful praise that we find here in King David in this ancient text, this joy, this praise for God. Well, it's not often heard today, is it? This is not the song that we find on the radio that our culture is singing. This is not the praise on the people's lips. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is not often the praise that we find even in our own hearts throughout the week. Yet, even though the Lord gets little praise from humanity today, verse 1 through 2 shows us that God's name is, in fact, majestic in all the earth. The glory of God that cannot even be contained in the vast profundities of the universe, the furthest depths of this vast universe, cannot contain His glory, for it is, as the psalm says, set above the heavens. Surprisingly, that same glory of God, he has chosen to manifest here on earth in a special, unique way, to display his beauty and power here. And all creation sings his praise, despite the fact that many in humanity do not. As Psalm 19, 1 through 2 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. 
It's a continual praise of God. It's going forth, coming from all parts of God's glorious creation. And so while God has his enemies in this world, his enemies, his foes, those who refuse to praise him, those who suppress his truth, who rebel against his ways, nevertheless, his glory is not diminished. His beauty is not hidden. His power is not weakened. And this is highlighted for us in verse 2 in the passage where we find that God's strength is established in a strange way, in a strange place. We find that weak, vulnerable babies, infants, defeat God's enemies. The language here is descriptive of infants that are still dependent on their mother's milk. The most vulnerable, the most weak. The point here is Simple, that God, if he chooses and he has at times, he can humble his enemies through weak and vulnerable babies, through children. And we know how this very text, this passage here is is quoted in the Gospels, in the ministry of Jesus, when the children are singing hosannas and praise because they are recognizing the Messiah who had come, Jesus, whereas the enemies of Jesus, the enemies of God, were scheming to try and squash Jesus and crucify him. God was establishing his strength in the most unique and strange way. His power, his glory cannot be diminished, cannot be silenced. And so we find that those who stand against the Lord do not stand a chance against the Lord. And yet, countless people still, still try and stand against him. But it's a vain defiance against God. Now today, this defiance has entered in, we could say, a new phase, a new phase of rebellion. In our Western culture, we find that we are quickly, day by day it seems, abandoning traditional Judeo-Christian claims and beliefs about the world and our place in this world. We have abandoned the sacred, the concept that there exists a God and angels and demons and that God relates to people here and is in in relation and in control of all that's taking place. We've abandoned that and embraced a mentality that is purely secular. We have tried to build, we could imagine it this way, like an iron ceiling above our heads trying to erase God from our imagination trying to imagine that this empirical world that we can touch and see and put under a microscope is all that exists. And that there is no heavenly realm. And why? Why, why have we abandoned these ideas? Why have we embraced the secular and distanced ourselves from the ideas of sacred? Well, largely, the motive seems to be so that God cannot interfere or disrupt our ways or our desires, what we want. This is always the case, as Romans 1 says, that humanity seeks to suppress the truth of God in order to pursue their own sinful ways, the desires that rage in their heart that are against God. And this this defiance that we find in society has resulted in an inward turn. Or maybe better said, in defiance we have turned inward into ourselves. 
The questions at the heart of this song that we just read, questions such as, what is man? These are the questions we should be asking. What is man? In other words, what is humanity? What sets us apart from all the rest of God's manifold creation? And what place do we have in the world? These are the questions we should be asking. But our culture is not asking these questions. Why? Well, it's because something else has taken precedence, has taken the place, the center stage of our heart's attention. And that is namely the inner psyche of a person. This is a dangerous turn inward that has taken place. And so instead of the question, what is mankind? What is human nature? Our Western culture is consumed with the question, who am I? That's what the culture is asking. And it's not just radical progressives that are the ones guilty of this. All of us, all of us have been pulled into this direction, pulled inward. It's kind of the air that we breathe, or as fish, the, the water that we're all swimming in. From Netflix to American pulpits, this is, this is all around us. We are obsessed with the inner life of the person. What one author, a philosopher, so, a sociologist calls the psychological man is how we consider ourselves, which is also why we've turned so much to the therapeutic. So what is the consequence, or what are the consequences of this turn inward? Well, the more we turn inward and narrowly focus on the inner psyche, those things that are found outside of us, such as your sexual biology that you were created with, or the created order itself outside of you, the physical world, and societal norms, all of those things outside of you become secondary or tertiary or completely insignificant altogether because the inner psyche is elevated to that place of prominence. And so what we find is that this inward turn has paved the way for things like transgenderism in our culture. The idea that your inner psyche, your inner person, can choose your sexual identity instead of your external biological members that you were created with, that you were born with, as determining what sexual orientation you are. This only makes sense, this idea of choosing your own sexual gender, only makes sense if the subjective inner psyche is elevated to prominence above nature, which is objective and outside of you. So that's one, that's one way that it has consequences in our society. Another is that this inner turn also paves the way for the growing acceptance of pornography in our culture, which is no longer hidden and taboo. It's now displayed and expected almost in every program that comes out on Netflix or every movie. Uh, soft pornography is, is found all over the place. It's not a question of whether or not it's going to be there. It's when it's going to show up in a movie or in a show. And how is this connected? Well, pornography elevates the satisfaction of the inner person's desires above the gift of sex, which is meant for the context of marriage. Between the union of a man and a woman for the procreation of children, for the benefit of society, all things that are external purposes for marriage. Objective, But instead, pornography elevates that individual psyche and the desires within and says that that's what's most important. And so indulge to your delight. 
The individual exploitation of sex through pornography, therefore, is only acceptable because of this inward turn. How about another case? The inward turn has also made our society more readily acceptable or accepting of abortion. Because again, it elevates that woman's inner psyche, her psychological well-being, above the objective nature of the human person that's being formed inside of her. So her inner person, her psychological well-being, is more significant than the actual human that is being formed in her womb. It's only, it only makes sense because of that inward turn that has occurred in society. And lastly, this also has contributed to a growing sense of confusion and turmoil amongst the youth in society because the culture charges them with the impossible task to find and discover themselves. Without any external help from their parents, from the church or society, telling them or pressing them to pursue what they ought to. Instead of society guiding them and directing them to find their proper place in the world, in society, the culture encourages them to look within their heart and discover themselves, which is an impossible and confusing task for children and for youth. But again, it only makes sense because of this inward turn that has taken place that we're all susceptible to. And these are just a few examples of how this inward turn to the psychological man has overturned society in defiance against God. And so after this inward turn, we're left with a society that is a flat cosmology. Like the Beatles song, that popular song, Imagine. Well, society no longer assumes that there is a heaven above. That imagining has turned into actual belief, actual creed of society. And so now with God kind of out of the picture, there is nothing sacred in the light, in the minds of people. Or as, and as the atheist philosopher Nietzsche reasoned well, that now with God assumed to be dead, there is no inherent purpose in life. There's no inherent purpose to humanity, no absolute morality, no order of significance in the universe. We're all just kind of cosmic dust and it's left up to us as individuals, as inner psyche, to create our own purpose and significance in life. And that's a scary place to be. Even Nietzsche was scared of society getting to that point. It results in moral confusion, a subjective kind of free-for-all battle of who's going to win the day and set the moral code for society by power. And we see this happening, right? We see this happening in society. as people seek to suppress God and push Him away and turn inward. Suffice it to say that the turn inward is a defiant and destructive turn. There must be another way. And this psalm, it shows us the other way. This psalm leads us there. It shows us a different turn. Notice, notice in this psalm how instead of turning inward and gazing at his inner life and his soul, King David, he turns outward to the created order and stands in awe of what is outside of him. Instead of finding himself through a psychological meditation, he finds himself by meditating on everything outside of him and therefore recognizes his God-assigned place and role in creation. In verse 3, 
David gazes up at the dark, dark canvas of the night sky and he remarks that God made the starry skies as if with his fingers. The language here is unique of God's creating with his fingers here. It speaks of God as an artist who gave careful, detailed attention to his work, to this masterpiece of his creation. Professor Dr. Johnny Gibson says, God is an artist and an incredibly big artist. It's it's as if God picked up the moon with his fingers like a marble and placed it in the sky. And then God's placement of all the enormous stars in the vast universe is like a teacher putting star stickers on the walls of her classroom. His careful, detailed attention, and yet he's so massively big, we can't even imagine, we can't fathom how majestic he is. And yet, remarkably, the Creator God stoops down to consider us, humanity. This this psalm here claims that humanity was made by God for a special destiny and a unique significance. In the creation account in Genesis, we find that among all of God's creatures, all of His creation, that humanity alone was uniquely created in God's image and given a royal task over all of God's work. Gibson says, again on this psalm, Psalm 8 is about the clash of man's insignificance and man's significance. On one hand, in comparison to the magnitude and manifold beauty of God's creation, man is a tiny little dust ball. Yet, God has appointed this tiny creature, man, to be the ruler over all things, even angelic beings. It's at, as he meditates on that, that clash, that shocking reality that he praises God. This understanding of human nature exalts humans to a high place in the created order. But as the superhero cliche goes, as you see almost in every Spider-Man movie, with much power comes much responsibility. And so this high place that God made for us means that he holds us to the highest ethical and moral standard. And this is important because by comparison, nothing, for example, in, this, in the theory of natural evolution, nothing in that theory that is so prominent in secular culture, nothing in that theory fills humans with the sense of moral responsibility to each other or to creation itself. No. Author Carl Truman writes this, Darwin's theory of evolution undermined notions of human exceptionalism by elighting the difference between human beings and other forms of life. And so the theory of evolution erases the distinctions between humanity and all of the other creations, making us all equal and removing the idea that humans are uniquely made in God's image. And this has an effect. He says... All that implicitly remains of human purpose is the attaining of personal psychological happiness in whatever form happens to work for the individual concerned. You see, it strips us of any kind of moral responsibility above other creatures. Might as well just pursue whatever your heart desires. By contrast, the outward turn to consider God's world And the unique place and role that he's given humanity over it is humbling 
And yet, it also fills, with, fills us with a sense of moral and ethical responsibility. We alone are asked and commanded to reflect His image and to execute His rule in this world with justice and peace. We alone are called and tasked to have dominion over all things. And so we find that this turn outward results in a robust cosmology, not a flat cosmology, for we still believe that the sacred exists. Thus, we can also have the moral clarity instead of the moral confusion that exists today. Because our moral clarity comes from God and His Word. And so this turn outward fills us with that moral sense of responsibility the very same responsibility that Adam in the beginning in creation had created in the image of God but failed to fulfill and likewise we also fail to live up to that moral ethical standard which is higher than any other other creature But in the gospel, we know that what we have failed to do, God has done for us. We know that the Son of God came as the Son of Man. Talk about humility. Talk about er, uh, condescending in love and humility to us. Not only does He consider and remember us, but He has come down in our human nature to redeem and restore humanity to its high place of honor in the created order. And he, like the psalm says, was first lowered, but he has now been crowned with glory. In Hebrews 2, 5 through 10, the author there of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8 and explains and interprets it in light of Christ, saying this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere namely Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, now referring to Christ, to Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That is, in his humility, in his incarnation, in his death on the cross for us. We see him who was made lower, namely Jesus, but now crowned with glory and honor, resurrected and seated and ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their faith, of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so we see that Christ in his humility, the son of God, became the son of man in order to bring us, the sons, to glory. To redeem and restore us to our rightful place in God's created order. This turn outward to see God's creation and our place in it like David did instead of turning inward. That turn outward to examine the stars and creation. That 
should fill us with praise and purpose and moral clarity. Yes. But even more, our turn outward to see Jesus in the gospel should fill us with praise, purpose, hope, and peace. He has redeemed and restored humanity to its rightful place. And God is making a new humanity through Jesus. And all who have faith in Him will be brought into glory with Him to rule and reign forevermore. And so lastly, our last little ending point here. This outward turn, it fills fills us with moral responsibility. As guardians and keepers of God's creation, to bring about shalom, God's peace here in the midst of chaos. And we're destined, as we find in Hebrews and other parts of Scripture, we're destined to rule and reign with Christ forever in the new creation, in the world to come. That's our destiny in Christ, our hope. We will rule even over the angels, it says. But we already have His Spirit now in us. So why wait? God doesn't want us to wait to start ruling and reigning. He wants us to begin ushering in His peace and His justice and His love in our sphere of influence, in our own lives, in our families, in our church, in our community, here and now, beginning to practice and learn the ways of ruling and reigning with Christ, which will be our calling forevermore that God is calling us to in Christ. And so He wants us to do that here and now, and I encourage you by the Spirit, you who are found in Christ, begin to do that in your life, in your family, in this church, and in the city of Ontario, wherever you find yourself. Rule with Christ by the power of His Spirit, for He has redeemed you, He has restored you, And one day we will sit and rule with him in the new world, ruling and reigning. So might as well start now. Amen. Father God, we praise you. We exalt your holy name. You are majestic. Your glory is set above the heavens and fills the earth. And we thank you that in Christ we have been redeemed and restored and we have been made part of that new humanity destined to rule forevermore. And we thank you that In Him we have not only moral clarity, but we have peace that surpasses understanding. For He has fulfilled the task that we failed to do. And in Him we are found complete. O Spirit, fill us with courage and love and hope so that in our lives we might begin here and now to rule over sin, to rule in our lives and usher in peace and justice, and thereby display the power of your coming kingdom. This we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.